Welcome to Diverse, a Society of Women Engineers podcast. SWE gives women engineers a unique place and voice within the engineering community. On Diverse, we highlight the incredible thought leaders and personalities in our community and discover who they are at home, at work, and in between. You can find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Jennifer Chen Morikawa, and welcome to Diverse, a SWE podcast. I am a director on the Society of Women Engineers Board of Directors and the Early Career Programs Lead for Manufacturing Engineering Vehicle Systems at General Motors. In celebration of Asian American and Pacific Islander, or AAPI, Heritage Month, SWE is highlighting AAPI members who came to the U.S. from Vietnam as refugees. Today, we will learn more about their experiences as they and their families were forced to leave their birth country to make a new life in the United States, and what experiences drove them to choose a career in science, technology, math, and engineering. I am eager to hear about their experiences, so let's get started. Before we meet our two guests, I want to start with a little bit of high-level history in case there are listeners who are not familiar with the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War spanned over a couple of decades and took place in Vietnam and its neighboring countries, Laos and Cambodia. In 1954, with the conflict paid out on the global stage, the Geneva Convention divided the country into two halves, North Vietnam and South Vietnam. With the Soviet Union funding North Vietnam, the United States became involved at that time in support of the South Vietnam regime and to stem the tide of communism into Southeast Asia. In 1973, a peace agreement was made with North Vietnam. However, the war continued and concluded in April 1975 with the dramatic withdrawal of U.S. forces, the evacuation of hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese, and the surrender of the South Vietnamese government. Since that time, the country was reunified as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam. Conflict in the region still continued for 15 years. The decades of war had a huge impact on Vietnam's population with an estimated number of 3 million deaths, 3 million wounded, and 12 million refugees. Refugees left Vietnam in three major waves between the 1970s to 1990s. The first major wave took place around the fall of Saigon. Now let's get to know our guests today. On today's podcast, I am joined by Dr. Tracy Nguyen and Hong Loi, SWE members who escaped from Vietnam during the fall of Saigon in 1975 and arrived in the United States as child refugees. Coincidentally, both came to the U.S. via the refugee resettlement camp at Fort Chaffee in Arkansas. Tracy is the SWE San Diego Professional Section Outreach Chair for fiscal year 22 and fiscal year 23, and an active member of the SWE Outreach Committee since 2020. Although a practicing optometrist and informal educator, she is a champion of STEM diversity and passionate outreach advocate who wholeheartedly embraces SWE's mission and vision of empowering women to reach their full potential in engineering careers and achieve parity and equity. Tracy and her family of eight immigrated to the United States from Vietnam during the fall of Saigon in 1975 via Texas and eventually settled in San Diego, California. She is a practicing optometrist and an ardent STEM advocate. Welcome, Tracy. 
Thanks, Jen. Happy to be here today, and I'm happy to share my refugee experience for AAPI Heritage Month. All right. Our next guest is Ang Lai. She recently completed a 34-year career with 3M Company in Minnesota, where she was a senior technical engineering professional and DEI leader who was global chair to the company's employee resource group for Asian heritage employees. Since discovering Sui and its mission, which she's attended We 16 in Philadelphia, Ong has been all in an active member of 3M Sui. Ong has led the professional development committee and is a frequent speaker at We Locals and We annual conferences. Support of women in STEM was recognized by Sui at We 22 with the Advocate of Engineering Award. Ong considers herself a Generation 1.5 American with a global citizen perspective. With two daughters and them, she's inspired to do better each day. Thank you for joining us today, Ong. Thank you, Jen. It's a real pleasure to join everyone here today and look forward to sharing our conversation. Yeah, I'm super excited to hear. So as we mentioned in the intro, you both came through the same refugee settlement in Arkansas. I would love to hear more about how each of you left Vietnam as a refugee and how old you were when you left. Stacey, let's start with you. Okay, so basically my dad was the vice mayor of the second largest city in South Vietnam, which is called Kanta. So he did not want to abandon his beloved country. So my dad waited literally till the very last minute to leave Vietnam when his buddy from the CIA came by the house and said, you must leave. You have no choice because if you stay, you would be put in prison for re-education camp. So for political reason, our family of eight, two parents, five siblings, five sisters, and one newborn brother. So my brother was just a month old when we escaped down the Mekong Delta to open sea. So when we got out to the ocean, the U.S. Navy came to rescue us. So my dad's best friend grabbed me, transferred me to the ship. And just as he did that, the Navy decided that they had rich capacity. And so I was heading to the Philippines with this man that I barely know. And my parents and family, unbeknownst to me, they were heading to Guam. So to make a long story short, eventually we reunited in the United States after about six months of separation. And I was five years old back then. Interestingly, like you said earlier, Hang and I actually were at the same refugee camp back in 1975. I can't imagine being separated as a child. I know as a parent, it's super scary being like having my child lost and very much freak out when I lose my child in a store or a museum and it has happened. And I know they were crying. So I can't imagine how you were feeling at five years old. Hong, can you please share your story? Yes, of course. You know, there are so many stories among Vietnamese that I never thought that my story was special (laughs) in any way because there were so many very much harrowing stories. My story kind of started out with both my parents. Back in 1954, when the country was divided at the Geneva Convention into North and South, both my parents, who did not know each other at the time, fled the North and leaving all their families behind and became refugees for the first time in South Vietnam. They met later 
and Mary. And so during the backdrop of the entire war, my father picked up, you know, an increasingly bad resume. Being former Northerners, he had kind of what you call a strike one. <laughs> and then additionally, he's also Chinese, Vietnamese, half Chinese himself. So, you know, as a subset of Vietnam culture, you know, that's also a strike two. And then thirdly, when he joined, when he moved down to the South Vietnam in 1954, leaving behind all his family, he was a man, a photographer, who had spoken four languages, Mandarin, Cantonese, Vietnamese, and French. And at that age, in his mid-30s, he learned English and picked up a job with the, with the American government for the United States Agency of International Development. And he was an auditor and, you know, with language skills, too. So with those three things, he, was, he had a very bad resume. And we were amongst the, I guess you would say the fortunate, who was able to be evacuated in the final days of Vietnam. We left on April 28, 1975, evacuated by military cargo plane in a covert operation. They keep picking up many, many loads of Vietnamese, fly to the Clark Air Force Base in Manila, dropping the loads off, and then come back. They keep going back and forth. When we left on April 28th, during the evening, a few hours later, the runway was bombed. And then after that, began the evacuation by airlifting as many people out of Vietnam by, as possible via helicopter. So those are the images in the final days that people are used to seeing in the news. So as we were hanging out in Manila, Philippines, not knowing what we were facing in the future, about a day and a half later, in the morning hours of April 30th, news arrived that the North Vietnamese troops has arrived into Saigon in their tanks and the South Vietnam government has surrendered. And it was then, even as a nine-year-old uh, at the time, I knew, well, along with my families and many other thousands of Vietnamese in Philippines, we knew that we were homeless, we were stateless, and that we may never see our families and home country again. And it was after that time, through an um, arduous route through Guam, and then we were settled into one of four refugee camps in the U.S. at that time. One was in Fort Chaffee, one was in Pennsylvania, and a couple of in California. We were replaced in Fort Chaffee, Arkansas, the same place that Trace and her family were. And our family of five were there for the entirety of summer of 1975 until a church in Toledo, Ohio, sponsored us. My parents were older than many of the others who attempted the trip. My dad was 53, and my mom was 42, who didn't know any English. And my siblings and I were 8, 9, and 10. Wow, that's amazing. So much to go through at a young age. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, like having older parents that didn't really know the language, but then, I mean, all of your father knowing four languages, I've been trying to pick up more as well. And that's the... In industry, right? Four languages is a good thing, right? I can see at the times of war, it could kind of get you in trouble. Education sometimes can get you in trouble. Thank you both for sharing your stories on how you came over and how old you were. Let's talk a little bit more about getting accustomed to your new life in the United States. So, Hong, I want to ask you this question Who helps you acclimate to the US and the culture? You know, I think acclimation is a process that I'm still going through after all these years. But, you know, it's, it's something that I think refugees and immigrants, really, it's, it's a lifelong process. 
And I look at it as a sink and swim and trial by fire kind of situation, being immersed into the environment. You do what you have to do. To this day, I am forever grateful that we had the generosity of the Lutheran Church in Toledo who sponsored us. I mean, they took care of everything that concerns the physical well-being. They provided us with a rental home. They bought us a car. They took my father on driving lessons. Eventually, because my sister and I and my brother were all taking piano and violin lessons when we were growing up in Vietnam, they got us an old piano that we could play on. At school, teachers were as welcoming as they could be. In Toledo, Ohio, though, the, the Asian community was very few. And in a way, that was by design because my parents were talking amongst us and said that, no, we, we don't really want to go into a community that has a lot of Vietnamese because they were very worried that we wouldn't learn English. And at the time, my father was also still very fearful of whom to trust, uh, fearful of communists, fearful of Vietnamese infiltrators amongst all of us. So they really didn't want to go where there could be discovered because they were so afraid of being, you know, found and hurt halfway around the world. So we settled in Toledo, so there were very few Asians. So we were at the point of curiosity, a lot of people. At that time, I don't think we know the word racism and biases and didn't really know how to actually process any of those things. So thankfully, I did not know. So it didn't mess my head as much as, as I think it could have been had we known about some of those things. But they certainly were around looking back. Um, I learned English watching TV, watching Sesame Street. I wrote every single word down when I was at school and I come home and I would look up the words in the Vietnamese English dictionary. And my father would be the translator for all of us, just looking at every single word that we had picked up from school. And, you know, so, so in the end, I believe that when one is thrust into some of these unforeseen circumstances, we all find ways to survive and thrive. And I realized years later that the challenges that immigrant families from any culture, what we face are unique and it continue long after the languages are learned. But boy, we would not be here today had it not been for so many of those individuals who helped us along the way. Yeah, for sure. I know my parents also, they learned their English. They came over, I think, in their mid to late 20s, around that same time. And they also learned English watching Sesame Street. And my cousins who came over for a time period, she had them watch Sesame Street as well to learn English. So definitely TV can be a useful resource as you're picking up other languages. Tracy, I have this next question for you. What was the most difficult part of transitioning from the Asian culture to the one in the U.S.? Well, as you can imagine, the separation from my family really impacted me personally, psychologically. So my first year in America, I actually did not speak very much, did not talk very much, not because I didn't know English, but the psychological impact too. So I actually flunked kindergarten. And then years later, I actually skipped ninth grade. So I was back to where, you know, the same grade as all my peers. As the first wave of Vietnamese, I we face discrimination as we try to assimilate, right? Of course, there was the resentment from the Vietnam War, and we were the first wave of Vietnamese in America, so no one knew what Vietnam was in the first place besides what they see on TV. So with better awareness and as things got better, and as people learn more about the Vietnamese culture, I recall sharing our Vietnamese heritage, music, and dance at school. 
during talent shows, we'll reenact certain dances uh, for the community. So I think that really helped in the early years. And then, of course, just like Hong, we were sponsored by a Baptist church to Dallas. And with the utmost respect for what they've done for us, giving us a home, giving us, giving my dad a job, you know, he actually imagined going from having everything that we have in Vietnam as a government official with chauffeurs and with maid service and all that. We come to America with absolutely nothing. And dad becomes the custodian at the church. That was his first job in America. And then, so with respect to then, what we did was we went to Sunday mass, a Sunday service for the Baptist church. And then on Saturdays, we would attend Catholic mass because we're Catholic. So to this day, my parents still stay in contact with some of the members of the church. That And, you know, set, it's been a, quite a long time since 1975. So a lot of the members are now gone, but my parents do keep in contact with a couple of them. But yeah, we're very, very grateful to the church. And I think for most refugees, that's our first introduction to America. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's great to hear, right? There's definitely some welcoming communities, definitely, you know, just from maybe some of the Tirana cities and just not knowing, right, that, yeah, those maybe biases and things kind of come out at times when people just don't know. And I know when we kind of talked earlier, right, we shared that you all came over as children. And I know that, you know, children can be more like sponges and maybe get to assume like learn the language, learn the nuances there. And then older folks coming over, they might have a little bit harder time. As you're going, just kind of curious, did you have any like, or can you share any observations maybe from your parents or other relatives who may have come over as older or later years? Can you share some of that? Uh, Tracy, why don't we start with you on this question? Sure. So I came over when I was five and escaped from Vietnam when I was five. And then I was six when I got here. And I think for me, I don't know as much Vietnamese as someone that would come over when they're like eight or nine. Because if you, um, if you imagine, you know, if you're eight, you probably have gone through third grade. And I think most people can say that, you know, if you have a third grade education, you can pretty much survive with that much with reading and writing. So, Looking back, I really think that, you know, the children that comes over when they're eight, they tend to keep the culture a lot more than someone like me who don't really have that much education in Vietnam. But my uncle and aunts, which my mom's brother and sisters, actually escape in the late 70s on a boat. And I believe like the, the people that come over in 79, 78, 79, the kind of like the second wave of Vietnamese that were able to come to America. And they come over and they, like my uncle and aunt, they actually attended college and eventually got into the tech industry. And interestingly enough, my family never got into the nail business, which is what most Vietnamese are known for in the later years. So that's just something interesting that I just thought about. Yeah, for sure. It, it does seem that there's a trend. There's a lot of businesses around and it kind of becomes a little bit of a stereotype with it. So it's sometimes hard to break down some of those stereotypes just 
And somehow we tend to gravitate into those spaces, right? It maybe was the ease to get into and start, right? Hong, do you have any observations that you'd like to share? Yeah, my take on this question about immigration as a child versus that of an adult is a little bit broader, not necessarily specifically to Vietnamese, but I think about the many Asian Americans that I have met through the workplace, and also my observation of other immigrants too, we refer to immigrants as first-generation Americans, and that their children are second-generation. And I think many people recognize that the experience of and perspective of these two groups are quite unique and different from each other. I call myself generation one and a half because I think it's another very distinct group that it's more you know, increasingly adopted terminology these days of these generation one and a half of anyone who's emigrated maybe before they're 18. These are children immigrants whose memories of their native land and culture can be as young as, you know, a child like Tracy who did not go to school, whereas I went to school. And I do have some pretty vivid memory. And then you're thrown into this other culture where it's you never feel as if you were born here because you walk into this culture having gone through, you know, a, a transition. So this generation one and a half is, I think it's very unique and it's led to a kind of a hybrid existence that continue to shape, I think it's a unique outlook that's different than generation one and generation two. For example, I find that I am much more in tune with learning about American histories and the place Asian Americans have played in our history. And, you know, so, so May Heritage Month here during which we celebrate the accomplishments and contributions of Asian Americans to American history. It's something that I'm highly in interested in and, and really have always been. But I find that older immigrants and certainly my parents who are just trying to survive, they don't have that necessarily that perspective. And so it's kind of a, a different perspective that I think that some of us have in who, who are younger immigrants. But that said, the thing that we all have retained through our experience is being immigrants and refugees, no matter what age, you pick up this sense of hope that things can be better and that we have the ability, we all have the ability in ourselves to achieve a better future. My parents really taught me a lot of that with the brave decisions that they made, not once, but actually twice to be refugees and to start over uh, the second time in which they leave their homeland. So there are clearly some differences, but I think there's a general thread amongst all immigrants from whatever culture that there is a sense of hope. and. That's something that we can do better. Yeah, I definitely believe in that too. And I know that's, you know, the reason why my parents immigrated over from Taiwan, right, to try to get a better life. Definitely has some choices there and very much respect that my parents, right, they speak two languages now because of us and, you know, can go back and forth between. So I have this question too, right, especially for you, Hung going to choose a career in STEM. Just kind of curious, did the refugee experience shape your choice? You know, if so, maybe what drove that decision? If not, would experience help you choose your career path? Oh, yeah. Well, without thinking that I was a refugee, I think, you know, I will tell most people who ask me, like, in among the many sweet conversations I've had, I chose a career in STEM because I had excelled in school, first of all. 
of course, including math and science. But, you know, in general, I loved learning and I was good at learning in school. And number two, I wanted to do something challenging. That always kind of thrilled me. When I was really young, I wanted to be an astronaut. And then I found out I had really bad eyes. <laughs> so, so I couldn't do that. But I wanted to solve a lot of different problems. So I think those two things were probably anchoring my own personal self about choosing a career in STEM. That said, my parents are not unlike other Asian stereotype parents. They did think about, you know, you could be doctors or engineers. Those are the only two career paths that they really know. So if you ask them, they would hope that we would choose one of those two careers that it happened that we chose, that my sister and I both chose engineering. But personally, my parents were in survival mode for most of their adult lives. So in Vietnam, as well as in the U.S., their influence on us was not in particular career paths. It's really that they held deeply value perspective about education. They really think that if you get a good education and you pursue scholastic pursuits, this would be the key to leading a good, upstanding life and to be able to take care of yourself and each other and to live in freedom. So if we choose careers are in STEM, I guess all the better. And personally, I think I made that choice because I wanted to solve problems that are challenging. And what's more challenging than being an engineer, I guess? That, that was what I knew. Yeah, definitely engineering is a huge challenge in that. And I know both you and Tracy are mothers, right? And you're raising children today. In particular, you have girls, right? It was just one of our main audiences. Do you think your refugee experiences influenced you with guiding your children into what they may want to consider for a career? You know, anything that encourages you to have them pursue more of a STEM or push them towards STEM. I definitely know that, you know, as you mentioned, medical profession, engineering, kind of that technology. So again, I want to take here both of your take on that since you do have girls in your family. Mihang, do you want to start? Oh, yeah, sure. Personally, I just think STEM people are really cool and are continuously needed to solve the world's toughest challenges. I did steer my children kind of in STEM. I wanted them to be happy with their choices. First of all, when they were young before college, I wanted them to take all the courses in school so that they can be ready to tackle a major in college and have future careers in engineering and science if they decide to go that route. But ultimately, my oldest daughter went toward healthcare, became a physical therapist, and did not need to take so many calculus classes when she was in college and high school. But I thought it was good for her. But she went to healthcare route and is starting her career out as a physical therapist. Uh, my other daughter just graduated from college last year as a software engineer. So she too chose a STEM career. But I would have been happy if they chose something that they were really passionate about. And, you know, what I've learned, I stayed with my career for 34 years at 3M as a practicing engineer, but I've learned that there are many, many, many ways to be an engineer. So I think that my daughters started out in a good career path. They may or may not stay as close to engineering or science, but they will be equipped enough to stay in engineering and science as long as they can be. And I'm, I'm hoping that they're, they're happy in that choice of, you know, where we're all really all of us who are in STEM have the capacity to be really resourceful and are good at problem solving. So 
my parents gave that kind of perspective to me to be resourceful and courageous and resilient in choosing a STEM career. I think I was able to practice all of those things. I hope I gave my girls some of those outlook as well. I love that. I love that you're saying that you're maybe trying to have them be happy with their choice there, right? I think it helps break some of that stereotypes too around Asian moms <laughs> and parents in general for how they raise their kids and trying to, to share that. And I know, Tracy, you became a very huge advocate for SWE because of your daughter. Can you share a little bit more about your experiences and your maybe philosophy? Sure, absolutely. So I come from a family of healthcare professionals. My older sister's a pharmacist. I decided to be a optometrist. My younger sister's a periodontist. And then the youngest one is a clinical psychology. So that's the route that my younger daughter's going toward. So my parents actually didn't really steer us in a particular career direction. Their emphasis was more of you go to college after high school. And that was basically all they pretty much uh, steer us to. And, you know, unlike typical Asian family where you push your your child to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, they didn't really do that. They just wanted us to go to college. And my dad actually studied at UCLA in 1968. So he knew about the UC system and all that way, way, way back then. So we all kind of aspire to go to a UC also. So I do the same for my children. I emphasize the importance, the importance of education. And that's probably the most important thing. I don't really steer them toward engineering or even medical school. And I basically want them to get an education and just do something that they're passionate about. So I have two daughters. The oldest daughter, which uh, most people do know, she's on the engineering uh, technology path. Uh, she just got done with freshman year. So she just came home from college this weekend. So we're enjoying having her home. And then I have a high school senior that's graduating next month. She's pursuing clinical psychology major on the pathway to uh, medical school, which is not something that I encourage. But if that's where she wants to go, then I'm happy for her. Again, like I said, I stress the importance of doing what you love and following your passion because I truly believe that if you're doing what you love, you know, work is not something that you have to do. It's just something that you enjoy doing. Awesome. And again, I love to hear that you and Hong have similar philosophies, right? Doing what you love, following your passion, you know, kind of having, I think, from the parents, like getting kind of that base career to help you be able to have more options. I love having that insight. I am a working mom as well with young children. So I love hearing about it and maybe helping to shape the way that I'm going to raise my kids. So no girls, but, you know, could have some really strong allies there with the other women in STEM careers. So thank you. I appreciate all that because, I mean, we draw from our different experiences and the refugee and just immigrants and just being Asian, right, can be part of that. Speaking of being Asian and that what I call our Western culture, right, it comes with its set of stereotypes and biases. And refugees may often face more stereotypes and assumptions from U.S. citizens, either from ignorance or traditional thinking passed down by family and community. How do you think 
we as the society can better advocate for and help refugees in transition? Uh, what could be done to pave the way for their successful acclimation to this new society? Any thoughts? Maybe Hong, starting with you? Well, there's a whole bunch of questions that can be unpacked from that uh, set. There are stereotypes from those who didn't come from our community, I guess as Vietnamese refugees specifically, and then there are those who are within our community from whatever perspective they have, and then what else can be done from any of these groups. So a lot to unpack. The one thing that I have learned in conversation as I, as you know, an Asian EOG leader when I was at my company and learning about many of the other Asian communities within the Asian American community is the insidiousness of stereotypes. <laughs> we just, you know, it's natural to have a way to kind of categorize things and people. And I think that's okay. But you have to leave room to change your opinions about people and things. So have an open mind. So the stereotypes can be broken down because eventually, in order to connect with other people, we really just have to look at others as individuals with their own experiences. Not all immigrants are the same. Not all Asians are the same. Not even two refugees are the same for their experiences. So as we meet each other, I would just say that in general, if you don't know the community, people that you're talking with, whether they're refugees or Vietnamese or immigrants or whatever, Muslim, LGBT, whatnot, just have an open mind and be curious to learn more and to treat them as individuals. And then if you're within the community, well, also have an open mind because what you experience as a older generation, certainly be aware that your children who are born here and while they are Asian with their upbringing, perhaps in the household, they're out there learning life as an American in a much different way than you did. So if you have children, also have that, just leave some room for, for, for change and, and openness. So yeah, we just got to leave stereotypes you know, at the door and, and just allow for some, some different perspectives to come in. Leave your cup half full so that it can be filled some more. Thank you. It's great to hear some that's great advice, right? Any for any situation, right? To learn about diversity and different groups. As we know, there are wars and natural disasters still taking place today, creating new refugees seeking a new life in the United States. What advice would you have for them? What was something that could have made transition easier for you and what you heard from maybe other family or friends that you can share with us, Tracy? Well, you know, in the early years, it was definitely more difficult to adapt as we paved the way for others now. I think that there are many more resources that are available now. And I think social media plays an important part in it, learning to adapt with Facebook, where you can belong to a community and you can learn the ins and out. I think it's a really important component adaptation nowadays. Remember back in the olden days, you know, there was no cell phones, it was just landline. So the internet wasn't even around back then. So imagine how difficult that is that spreading the news or learning new things. Nowadays, you have social media, you have YouTube, you know, you want to learn English, you can actually learn English online. 
So I think adaptation is slightly easier, not to say that it's not difficult. It's important for Revachi to find a light mind community to help with the transition, right? So I think that to even to this day, the church still plays a big impact. Catholic charity is still very instrumental in refugee resettlement. My dad actually eventually joined the church as a deacon, and he worked for Catholic charities for about 20 years until he retired. But growing up, I was just thinking how he used to bring refugee home to our home and invite the men to stay with us as they transition to their own home. So I think that it's great to have um, supportive people in the community to be so open-minded and to be able to help others. And I think that's part of the primary reason why I'm in the medical field, in the healthcare field, because I really want to help others. And like engineers, I'm a problem solver too. So I solve problems every day for patients. So that's pretty much it. I think, you know, the church plays a big part and all those resources out there right now. We just need to make sure that they know that there are resources. And, you know, just like SWE too, I mean, with students coming up, learning, you know, we're out there trying to advocate and get more girls into STEM. Yeah, for sure. You know, leveraging those resources, finding and building that community, that invitation, right, to help and try to build understanding I know, right, making connections definitely helps, right, to, you know, have those shared experiences. So that's great to know, right? And, you know, checking those stereotypes as Hong said at the door, because, you know, just because they maybe don't understand the language doesn't mean they're not very intelligent and can solve those problems. It's just, right, it's a little bit lost in translation at a time for anybody coming in new in the United States where English is not their first language. And I'm sure it happens in any country as well, right? Anyone going to a different country and doesn't know the language. So as we wrap up and our final question for today, what do you want others to understand about refugee experience so that they can be better advocates for those going through this difficult time in their lives? Well, have both Hong and Tracy share some thoughts. So Hong, I'll start with you. Yeah. And, you know, the first thing to distinguish between refugees and immigrants is refugees are immigrants who did not choose to immigrate. So if you ever travel to a different country for vacation or for school or work, I think you might have an understanding there that at first when you go to those places, there is a culture shock. There may be a language barrier. And there is a general need to build communities of support just to navigate the new surroundings and to take care of yourself and perhaps also your family. For refugees, there are some additional layers of stress. These are people who have found themselves in urgent, dire circumstances well beyond their control. You'll hear them about some of the more recent instances around Minnesota, we have Somalis and uh, refugees from Myanmar. And right now we have more recent instances in Afghanistan and Ukraine. These are people who suddenly found themselves without home, without country, and who fear that they are forever cut off from their families and from their homeland. 
So there is a sense of loss that is really deep and long-lasting. And that is a true thing for individuals like my dad, who never saw Vietnam again and had never saw the family. He never made it back to Vietnam ever. And my mom only made it back a couple of times. And I myself have only been back three times. So it's always in your heart, in your home country, but it's also, you know, there's a lot of curiosity about what was and what could have been. So it's a really deep sense of, ref I mean, a refugee experience could be a permanent thing for a lot of people who are refugees now. So their new lives are going to take on many twists and turns that include assimilation to the no new culture. And but at the same time, trying to retain some of their heritage for themselves, their language, their customs. And then maybe passing some of those things on to the next generations to come. So it's a whole bunch of different things that are rolling to. And so why the refugee experience is a little bit different. But that said, the advocacy that we can all have for each other, it just needs to start with, you know, some genuine curiosity to learn about other people who don't look and sound like us. And this goes with anyone, whether the refugees are LGBT or, you know, from, from whatever ways that they are different than us, because we all need to be helping each other. And the understanding that can pave the way, some of those conversations to learn about each other, is how we start to care for one another and have a global village mindset. The rewards of our society, especially in the U.S., where there have been so many cultures that have come together, is so overwhelmingly positive. It's an amalgam of so many different things. It's in our food, it's in our entertainment, it's in our industry, and it's in the way that we conduct science and STEM, by including a lot of different perspectives. So, you know, so, yeah, for the refugee experience is different, but I, but I think it's, um, yeah, I think just more awareness would be just a positive thing for all of us together. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Christine. So I totally agree with you. The refugees have experienced extremely stressful experience, right? Because of political, religion, oppression, war, uh, resettlement, and they often experience drama and uh, PTSD is real. So navigating life as a refugee requires courage, strength, resiliency, and they have no choice but to restart their life in a new place, in a new unfamiliar country. So I think that's the main factor here is, you know, we really need to realize all of this and that to support the refugee that are here today. Yeah, thank you for providing that perspective. Uh, definitely right that's, you know, we hear of Asian hate and sometimes, you know, people say, go back to your country and they're like, I can't, <laughs> right? For some of those things, uh, you know, definitely, you know, adds that perspective by sharing that again for everyone. So I'd like to thank you both Ahong uh and Tracy for taking the time to speak with us today. You have provided some really valuable insight into just a small part of the Asian American community, which will be helpful for our current and future engineers and leaders. I am totally awed by all the courage and perseverance you and your families had to pursue a nice a new life in a different country. Um, there's so much to learn from others, and your stories definitely prove that. Any closing remarks, Hung? Yeah. 
You know, I am a woman in STEM, just like both of you here. And in talking to our audience, there are many of us who are in various stages of STEM careers, including in education, collegiate, and those of us who have, you know, kind of completed our careers as well. I do believe that each of us come from a place of strength and resilience and resource for us. To complete a STEM career is like no shortage of courage in all of those things. So there is just so much richness, richness in all of us. I do want to take this opportunity to thank Sweeve for providing this platform for us, Tracy and I, and Jennifer here, to share just one slice of the diverse stories. And that happens to be of Asian Americans this month. And I am also really glad that Sweeve house affinity groups such as the Asian Connection Affinity Group that have brought us together and proud and you know they, they make me proud to call it one of my communities as we move forward here. So really appreciate SWE and SWE ACHE to do this for us and our team here today in putting on this podcast. So I echo what uh, Hang just said and I'm really happy to be able to share my refugee experience to celebrate Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month and Again, i like to thank Sui, and also thank you so much, Jen, for spearheading this. I had a really good time reflecting back on my experience, which I don't think I've really shared them like this before, so thank you. Oh, yes, thank you all, and definitely the support that we have from our Asian Connections team that helped us pull this together, I'd like to, to thank them as well. So from, for all of us at Sui, thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe and you can find our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and Google. Have a good rest of your day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Diverse. Please don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with your social network and on our blog, altogether at altogether.swe.org.